der Triathlon Show, die Nummer 11 vor. What's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview coach Neil McPherson. Neil is a Scottish coach living in Cape Town, South Africa, where he together with his wife Diana co-owns and runs the coaching business and performance center Dynamic Coaching. Neil is also a coach educator and facilitator, having done a lot of coach education work for both British Triathlon and for the ITU, the International Triathlon Union. So he has plenty of experience to discuss coaching from both uh, a coach-athlete relationship perspective, but also as somebody who has helped educate other coaches and also mentoring some other coaches. We'll get right into the interview after thanking our sponsors. First, we have Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. Roka's wetsuit lineup is where the company got started with the mission of creating the world's fastest wetsuit. And now they have a whole range of wetsuits from the entry-level Maverick Comp 2 to the flagship-level Maverick X2 wetsuit with a number of wetsuits in between, including also a thermal wetsuit and a swim-run wetsuit. Roka's wetsuits have uh, technologies such as the patented Arms Up technology. They all come with premium materials and uh, lots of other bells and whistles depending on which level of wetsuit you're going for. You can check them out on roka.com, but regardless of your ability and your wetsuit budget, you can find something that is uh, suitable for you and is going to be an amazing wetsuit for years to come. You can get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Swim Trainer is an inflatable swim bench that you're using together with a set of standard stretch cords. But as opposed to standard stretch cords, which you would use standing up and therefore putting a lot of strain through your uh, hamstrings and your posterior chain, and also not all being specific to the swimming position, with the Senate Swim Trainer, you're laying down on the swim bench in the same specific position to what you will have in the water when you're actually swimming. So therefore you can train the movement correctly and ingrain the right movement patterns and not just work your arms somehow, which is what uh, more what normal stretch cord use is more like. Uh, in addition, you can work on some specific aspects of your swim stroke, such as the high elbow catch, which the height of the swim bench is perfectly designed to help you work on, and uh, your uh, core activation because of the instability element of the swim bench. Uh, the Senate Swim Trainer is not designed to be a replacement for pool swimming, but it can be a great adjunct to it. So you can add a couple of short sessions per week to what you're already doing in the pool. And it also opens up opportunities to do some specific training like swim, bike, brick workouts, where you can do a high-intensity Senate Swim Trainer set just before jumping on your bike, whether it's on the indoor trainer or going out on the roads and doing that right after finishing that uh, simulated uh, dryland swim session. You can get 20% off your order of the Zenate Swim Trainer with the promo code that you can get on zenateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Coach Neil McPherson. Today's guest on the Triathlon Show is uh, Neil McPherson. Neil, how are you doing today? 
Not too bad at all, thank you. Not too bad at all. Hope you're well as well. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Uh, can can you start by telling the audience and myself a bit more about your your background and uh, where you're calling in from, so to say? Uh, I'm calling in from the beautiful city of Cape Town in South Africa, uh, where I am uh, involved as a coach with Dynamic Coaching. Uh, it's a coaching concern that was started actually by my wife uh, when she retired from competing as a triathlete. Um, my involvement uh, was almost accidental. You could say I'm an accidental coach. Um, I was involved in triathlon and duathlon in the mid-1990s to keep fit. Um, I participated and raced and uh, raced at national level as an age grouper, not with much success, but I enjoyed it. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, was quite good, and um, she actually went on to race professionally. Um, my journey into coaching started when we went to the UK in about 2003, and she was unable to get onto any of the performance squads there because she's South African. Um, so after looking around, there wasn't as many coaches available then as there are now. And uh, so after looking around a little bit, we decided to just do it ourselves, which started me on the ongoing journey of learning how to be a coach. Um, I coached her for a few years until 2006, where she achieved her goal of racing professionally at Kona. Um, and after having achieved that goal, she then decided to retire and thought, okay, what am I going to do? So she was asked to get involved in coaching with a couple of the local clubs. And uh, as part of that, um, she went on and did the British triathlon level uh, coaching courses. And basically to keep a company, I went along and did them as well. Found out I enjoyed them, found out I really enjoyed the process of coaching um, and was then later on asked if by British Triathlon to get involved with their coach um, education program, uh, became a facilitator for them. Um, and by 2010, I was basically working with three different clubs, working with uh, Edinburgh University as the head coach at Edinburgh University and um, realizing that this could be my full-time job. Uh, so 2011, we moved back to Cape Town uh, from, from Scotland, where we decided to open the doors of the Dynamic Training Center, which offers analysis and testing and training to age group athletes uh, and professionals for that matter. Um, and that's where we've gone from there. I was then asked to be involved with the National Federation. Uh, I helped set up their uh, coach education program. That got me involved with the International Triathlon Union, and uh, I've been doing facilitation for them on coach education in some weird and wonderful places like Nepal, uh, Iran, Gambia, Nigeria. Not many people know that there's a national federation in Gambia. Um, and, um, yeah, so coaching as a day-to-day -day job, coach education on the side, you could say. And, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting it's been an interesting. 15 years. Uh, and that's what I do now. Full-time coach, full-time coach educator, uh, operating out of Cape Town, working with athletes all over the world. Yeah. And uh, and just to, to mention that center that you mentioned again with uh, that you have with Dynamic Coaching in Cape Town, you do uh, testing, performance testing, and some yeah. other analysis there as well as your yeah. services. We have, a, we have an endless pool, uh, which we use for uh, swim video analysis. Uh, we also do lactate testing. Uh, we do bike fit, utilizing the retail system. Um, it's just basically to try and give um, people a, a one-stop shop, uh, video analysis on the run, uh, 
to try and find that competitive edge that maybe they can't get just from training and training and training. Yeah. And uh, a couple of questions there, uh, follow-ups on your introduction. What got you into coaching? You said that you kind of found out that you enjoyed it. What, what was it that got you got you sucked in? Um, necessity. Um, the uh, As I mentioned, my wife was – we were needing uh, somebody to help us with her development as an athlete. Um, and um, that happened to be me. Uh, I was the one on hand to do it. Went and did a lot of reading, went uh, up to Sterling University and spoke to some of the coaches up there who were in the performance program, uh, got feedback from them, uh, and then just tried to be a sponge and take as much on board as I could and applied it to um, you know, the training and the conditioning that uh, my wife was going to need to race. Um, and that was it. it. was Initially, that's all it was. And from that, you know, when I... When we started dynamic coaching, well, when my wife started dynamic coaching, uh, I basically came along just to assist. The idea was it was a part-time thing for me just to help out. And I really enjoyed the interaction. I enjoyed the mental challenge. Uh, I enjoyed you know, finding solutions to problems. Yeah. Um, not everybody, nobody is the same. And people will come to you and thinking, how can I get faster? Um, even strategy on a race, um, interestingly enough, I was talking to one of our associate coaches this morning, and they have a, a young athlete who's going up to race uh, in international in the uh, uh, intercontinental champs in a few weeks' time. And we were discussing, okay, what do we have to do? Who is she going to be racing? Okay, what is the strategy we need? We know what her strengths are. We know what her weaknesses are. We know at the moment that there's been a bit of an issue around plantar fasciitis, so we can't do too much on the on the run. What are we going to do to give ourselves a competitive advantage? It's it's brilliant. It's like a, an unassembled jigsaw, and you've got to look at the pieces, and you've got to put and you don't even have the picture. You don't even have the full picture, but you've got to put those pieces together to build a picture. And it's only when the pictures, when you've done that, do you actually really see the whole the whole package. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's brilliant. And uh, and if we start talking about your how you view coaching and training, if you want to call it, I I, mm-hmm. I, I always call it kind of, kind of coaching or training philosophy, even though I don't necessarily think that that's a good term, but I, I can't think of an alternative. So can you yep. describe describe that how you how you view those things? Um, if I was to sum it up in one word, it would be individualized. Coaching, you, uh, the bane of my life is 12-week programs to an Ironman. Um, you know, cut and, uh, cut and paste. Uh, here, here's a program. That works. Um, my philosophy has, has, is that you have to sit down with an athlete. You have to identify where they currently are. You've got to make sure that they understand what their goals are. You've got to understand, are those goals realistic in the time frame that they're talking about? And then you've got to work out what you have to do with that athlete to move them from that point to their destination. Um, you can call it periodization. I call it road mapping. Um, and so my philosophy on coaching is everybody's going to be on a journey, and that journey is going to require different tools. It's going to maybe go in different directions. So you cannot just have a one-size-fits-all, one-approach um, one standard. You've got to be flexible. Uh, you've got to be flexible in what you prescribe. You've got to be flexible in your feedback. You've got to be flexible in um, the way you take on board feedback. 
And I think I mentioned to you earlier that um, one of the things that concerns me with a lot of online programs and systems is athletes and coaches, for that matter, confusing data download with feedback. Yes, you did mention that. I totally agree. And I mean, so people, there you go. And for example, Garmin or Polo or whatever, they download the files and you're left with the files. And yes, there's a lot of interesting information there. But unless you, it's like emails, there's so much lost. So you need to have the interaction, um, uh, communication. You need to have that communication with the athlete. Um, and that can be through various methodologies, but um, it simply isn't about programs and training. It's simply not just about here is a standard, standalone, one-size-fits-all approach. It's got to be flexible. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's a really great great overview. And uh, and if we go into that feedback side a little bit more, um, because I think this is something that maybe a lot of athletes are not really aware of. Like when you when you start working with a coach, of course the coach uh, will tell you what kind of feedback they expect. But many athletes have never had a coach and and uh, maybe doesn't really know what they should be. And this is even for writing your own, if you're a self-coach athlete, writing your own comments on your in your training log. So, mm-hmm. so, but but if you're working with an athlete, how do you educate them in what sort of feedback you're looking for? Like, what what are the things that you want them to to give you? Um, look, I, I use Final Search um, as the uh, as the diary, um, and I will go through each session and I will look at how well they performed, and I put information to the comments box asking questions okay i see you, you you went over on that you went over the power numbers there why um i'll sometimes in the program deliberately put things in there in in, in the prescribed session uh, they doing a session ask me why we're doing this so in fact in the sessions i actually try and stimulate them to come and contact me mm-hmm. if i haven't had any feedback from the athlete i will go and speak to them and say pick up pick up the phone okay i need more information um it's not just enough to have the download. Put this, how did you feel? Use, and I don't like tick boxes either because it's too easy just to tick the middle box and tick on the, on the, on the box. I want written feedback on how did the t- you might have hit the numbers, but were you working 9 out of 10 to hit those numbers or did, were you working 6 out of 10 to hit those numbers? Um, so it's just using the phone, uh, using email, uh, using the comments in Final Search. Um, and if you don't get feedback, ask again. And ask again and keep asking and if it's consistently and to be honest with you i mean if you consistently don't get the feedback then you've got to seriously sit down and say is this coach athlete relationship working and maybe it's not the appropriate coach athlete relationship and maybe there's got to be they might do better with somebody else they might do better with one of our other coaches um and we've done that we've actually had situations where we felt that there just wasn't that connection and so another coach has stepped in um and there is a better there's a better empathy um, and that's worked. And sometimes we've had to say, look, you know, this just isn't working. Um, we don't feel that we can give you the service. We don't feel we can give you the level of training that you want with the communication that we're having. Um, sometimes you have to walk away. Yeah. Do you have any views on, uh, how, wh- when do you need the feedback? Because this is something that like, just from a pure, from my own coaching perspective, I've been in situations where sometimes I have to wait three days for getting a comment in the session and like, mm. It, it gets annoying. <laughs> yeah. What's, what's your view yeah. on that? Um, I think it depends on, um, 
I think it depends on the session. Like if it's a test, I want the information right away. As soon as you finish it, as soon as you finish the test, I want the information right away, partly because I've then got to adjust the program going forward based on the test results. Um, if it's just, um, you know, if it's been um, a steady pace run uh, in the middle of the week, I don't need the feedback straight away on that. So it depends on the session. If it, as we get closer to goal races, you're going to be wanting it on a more regular basis. Um, and so you might be having conversations twice, three times a week. Uh, if we're at the beginning of a program and we're just building the volume and there's no, uh, there's very little intensity um, and there's very little focus on technique, yeah, get let, drop me a line at the week. Let me know how it went. If there's anything I need to know, let me know. So it's not a fixed, it's not a fixed point. Um, it yep. varies depending on where we are in the season. Uh, obviously, if something's gone wrong, you need to know straight away. If the person said, you know, I just couldn't get those numbers today, um, gave it everything and I couldn't get those numbers, I need to know straight away. And we then need to sit down and have a conversation. Okay, let's look at your nutrition. Let's look at what, you know, have you changed your nutrition in the last couple of days? Have you been sleeping? Um, what are the other factors that might have changed? Sometimes just had a bad day. Sometimes we need to relook at what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I, I generally agree with that. I think, I think that the issue that I still might potentially have with giving the feedback like several days later, if we're talking about that, even if everything went sort of all right, is that you, you run the risk of like as an athlete, you don't really remember the finer details or nuances of how that session felt uh, mm -hmm. as you did in the moment. So, so then yeah. some, uh, some, yeah, some fine details get lost. And then for that particular session, it doesn't matter. But if that happens consistently, then you're not getting as clear of a picture. It's more of you're seeing the picture, picturing black and white rather than in full color. It's, it's interesting being, uh, yeah, being a little bit of a Luddite. Um, I was actually going through uh, my old training logs and you know, these were actual diaries that you kept and you would fill it in every day with the session you did. And, and the, the level of detail that you used to put into that uh, was was huge. And we, we, we don't tend to do that with use, utilizing online systems anymore. Um, we're talking about a run and, as you said, how you were feeling, what the weather was like, uh, the fact that it was slippery, the tarmac was slippery because there was dew. Um, and uh, you, you look at the level of detail that went into that. Um, and yeah, maybe it's something we're working on too much convenience um, and there's too much, you know, press a button for was it a good session? How did you feel? Et cetera, et cetera. Maybe we need to actually um, pay a little bit more attention to that. Yeah. Um, a couple of other interesting things that we talked about in our email conversation before this interview that I want to chat a little bit about is first of all, you mentioned uh, an example of uh, taking or training an athlete or coaching an athlete right now to their first Ironman. Mm -hmm. But this particular athlete uh, has a background as uh, participating in the Olympic Games, but in a different sport than triathlon, in an explosive sport. So, so completely yep. the opposite side of the spectrum. And I'm curious to hear more about that. Um, yeah, it's, um, this is a guy who was a, a full-time professional athlete in um, an Olympic sport, uh, well-funded Olympic sport. And so he'd, had, he'd been training for years as a full-time professional. Um, he had recently stepped away from that and uh, for some bizarre reason he decided to try something completely different and wanted to do uh, an Ironman. Uh, he reached out to me for some assistance. Um, and... What was nice is as a professional, ex-professional athlete, uh, his discipline, his understanding of coaching process was there. Um, he would, he would uh, 
interact. Um, he knew what was required. He, if you told him to do something, he would do it. But when we started off and did some testing, his um, his top end power was through the roof. But what that also meant was that at every level of power, he was utilizing his glycolytic system, and that meant that as the further and further we went, that the drop-off got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so what we had to actually do was detune him. He was uh, – everything he was doing was full bore. Um, and as somebody who'd done an explosive sport, uh, which also a very competitive one-on-one um, -on -one type sport, he everything he did, he wanted to do to the max. Uh, and it was actually an education process, um, trying to teach him that you don't – there is benefit in going easy. Uh, he felt, you know, if he's not going hard, you know, can it be of any real benefit? Um, and one of the things that we had to, that was very useful, especially on the run, was uh, I very quickly moved him on to running with a power meter. Because um, his perceived, his, his, his perception of, of effort was bizarre. Um, he thought he was going easy when he was probably running at about uh, eight and a half, nine out of ten, um, realistically. Um, running over over threshold running close to vo2 but he didn't think it was that hard because he'd been so used to doing these maximal top end efforts and he has a uh, massive anaerobic battery so it yeah. doesn't feel like it's it's not, it's not getting drained like yeah. quickly it, yeah and exactly and it was actually quite interesting even when we looked at the some of the initial tests like a three minute test and a 10 minute test there wasn't that much of a drop-off um because yeah. he, he had this massive said massive battery uh there was then a drop off if we looked at doing um a, a five kilometer test there was a bit quite a bit of a drop off then but then the drop off as it went longer became monumental um and so, so i said literally we have to um we had to detune him we had to teach him to become an aerobic creature um and that took a bit of that's, that's that that takes some humbling because you're they're taking something that somebody's good at and prides themselves upon. And actually saying to them, you know, that this is actually not only not useful to you, it's actually hindering you. Um, so it was educating him on the benefit of going easy, understanding that there is, um, that that is what is required, um, and understanding that not everything has to be done flat out. Um, the Ironman was postponed, so we're now looking at September. The process is growing, and he's actually doing really well. Um, you know, I'm expecting a sub nine hour. Um, Iron Man from him on his first attempt, um, but the the other thing was he has the ten the tendency to try and power his way through th things, and that impacted on the swim. Uh, physically, incredibly robust individual, and his tendency on the swim was just to try and smash his way through the water, um, as opposed to looking for efficiency in the water, uh, and that was a again. Used, utilizing power was very effective. Look at all the power you're using, but it's not being used effectively. Um, we can and here, and here we should maybe so mention that. That, that you're also using the TrainSense smart paddle, so you can actually Correct. look at the direction of, of force and power force. application in, yeah. uh, in the swim stroke and, and see, okay, maybe the power is really, really high, but most of it goes downwards like vertically or laterally some of some of those numbers some of those numbers not just with this athlete when people come in and they see it it's, it's eye-opening um especially at the front end of the stroke the amount of power that is being used in a downward direction 60 70 of power in occasion um and what's really nice about that as well is you can also then say okay try changing this try doing that and you can then actually quantitatively see the difference 
Um, so it's not so much about you know changing subject slightly, but it's uh, it is that's what you were doing. If you do that, that's what you get. Um, very very useful tool. Yeah, and well, one reason that I want to talk about this example, other than it being just really interesting as an example in itself, but uh, with amateurs coming into triathlon, of course, we have a lot of amateurs coming from running or cycling and so on, but there are also people coming from from different backgrounds, from team sports mm-hmm. or from uh, from CrossFit or what have you. So, so we might have uh, many amateurs that are in a kind of similar situation, may, maybe not like at, the, at such an extreme end as this Olympic athlete, but still. That require an approach that might be qu- quite similar in in terms of training and adaptation to triathlon. So, so what what learnings uh, do you think they should take from from this one, example? One, take a long term view. Okay, don't expect uh, to change something in the short term. Uh, have a long term, take a long term view. Understand that it's going to require change and adaption. Um, appreciate that um, it's going to. It's, it's going to require you to do things differently and to it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be uncomfortable because you're not you're coming from an area of excellence um, and often as I that excellence in fact is going to be counterproductive it could be counterproductive for what you're now wanting to do um, so be patient with yourself um, and I think that was what that's one of the important things um, is you've got to be patient with yourself and you've got to be kind to yourself it took you years to build up a level of expertise in this other sport, whether it be rowing, whether it be um, football. Um, it's going to take you time to adapt to this new sport. Um, and <clears throat> what you can take from that sport is the discipline. You can take the, um, the focus uh, and the mental fortitude. But if you're coming from explosive sports like CrossFit, you know, you, it's, it's a completely different ballgame. There's not a there's not an awful lot of the anaerobic benefits that you could use in an Ironman sprint distance triathlon slightly different, but for an Ironman, there's I'm a huge fan of CrossFit. I think you know if somebody is looking to get fit and they have a limited time and they just want to be functionally fit, I think there's a CrossFit's a great thing. I don't particularly like it as a strength and conditioning for triathletes. Uh, I think there's too much focus on high interval, high interval, um, high intensity interval training, uh, and I think it actually compromises the aerobic system um, and puts too much focus on the anaerobic uh, anaerobic system. It's that seesaw effect. Yeah. If you're overdeveloping the one, you're compromising the other. Um, so yeah, it's you're going to have to be patient, um, and you're going to have to spend a lot of time, depending on what sport you're coming from, on a lot of time doing the boring stuff. Uh, and it's it's not sexy yeah. it's it's repetitive and it's often tedious but we're in an endurance sport where you know if you're lucky you're finishing in nine hours uh, you can't you, you can't expect to do that quickly no uh just to to illustrate a little bit maybe keep talking about this former olympian or well once you're an olympian you're always an olympian uh when you're doing his um maybe you want to call it harder session or like quality sessions like not mm-hmm. just the regular endurance workouts what type of workouts would those be would they be more like ironman race pace or maybe like tempo and threshold work or would you still have him sometimes do more okay. like interval training above threshold yeah um initially i stayed away from the above threshold um training because i wanted to reduce that anaerobic capacity a little bit uh where we are currently is we're now reintroducing uh, intervals uh 
um, on the um, on the bike. Um, it, we can be doing anything from uh, three minute to eight minute intervals, depending, uh, and the power will depend on that time on that time frame. If it's three minutes, we might be working at about one hundred and twenty percent off FTP. Um, if it's um, eight minutes, we're going to be working probably more than that, the 108 percent. Um, and I don't, I don't just utilize uh, threshold power, critical power. I think that's an interesting number. Um, but you've also, but you can have two people with the exact same FTP, and they're not going to ride the same time, same weight, same body, same same bike. Just because their FTP is the same doesn't mean the same they're going to be able to ride for an hour uh, at the same pace. Um, into uh, at this stage, not doing much at all on very short intervals, thirty seconds, one minutes not needing that at all, certainly for this athlete. Um, and threshold work, we all normally do threshold work and tempo work. Um, the tempo work I tend to put into the long bike as part of the long bike. Threshold work we do as a standalone in the week. Um, and that would be anything from uh, 15 minutes up to 60 minutes. And again, we will play with the power numbers depending on that. Um, if we're doing 15 minutes, we'll be done higher power at a higher percentage. If it's a, a 60 minute, it's going to be at a lower percentage. Um, and incorporated into that, we'll also play with different uh, different cadence. Um, one, just to develop the ability to ride at different cadences. Uh, and two, also just, you know, recruiting different muscle fibers um, and developing different muscle fibers with, say, for high torque work and low cadence. Yeah, and and is the approach kind of corresponding uh, on the run and the swim as to what you described? Yeah, within within reason. Um, yeah. On on the swim, uh, I do tend to have a higher percentage. Uh, I use a higher percentage. I work up to a higher percentage on the swim, simply because I think the body can handle it. There's not the same stress uh, on the run. We do, I don't use as much as on the bike. Um, again, uh, a lot of age groupers we we they need to recover. Um, but yeah, so typically, um, once we've got the volume there, there's, there's no stage. Do I ever just have base work? We are always incorporating elements of threshold work, tempo work, VO2 work, uh, even in when we're building the volume. But once we've got a, a, a big enough volume, uh, to really go and weigh and look at the power, the power side of things, then we will, uh, integrate interval work and we will integrate some speed work accelerations. I think you can use accelerations and surges really well, um, to get the top end speed work without having to go to the track and do two hundreds and one hundreds, um, yeah. hills, hills are great for that as well. Uh, and are probably more specific to um, sort of running a, a triathlete and certainly an Ironman triathlete would need. Yeah, no, that's yeah, hill work is great for like just a neuromuscular yep. development of recruiting like a large amount of your uh, your muscle fibers, including those fast twitch fibers to, to work and on you, speed. You could, and you can, you can throw those into a long run. Um, yeah. I mean, go, go and do a long run, nice and easy pace, do some surges, you know, get everything loosened up and then hit some, depending on where we are in the season again, and then hit some hills, um, five repeats, six repeats, might even get up to 10 repeats with lots of recovery. Um, you know, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, you know, going on two minutes. And that's all about what you're saying, muscle recruitment and getting that uh, posterior kinetic chain firing, making sure that everything's working the way it should be working. And then off you go and finish off with another, you know, eight, nine, 10 Ks of easy running. Yep. And uh, then another topic that I want to discuss is uh, a very kind of typical uh, profile for an athlete. 
that uh, that you see a lot and that I see a lot as well is the kind of experienced athlete who has ambitions uh, ambitious goals like qualifying mm-hmm. for or performing at world championship level events but uh, might be at a bit of a plateau and uh, and haven't really improved that much in in some time and uh, and don't really know what to do next so uh, so what do you feel are some common reasons uh, for athletes uh, hitting such a plateau and, and then when they come to you and and you help them out what are the the methods that you use to yeah. to then help them get get to that next level and, and and reach their goals i certainly see with a lot of age group athletes they get focused on their goal race and they go and do it and then they step away in the off season they step away for two months three months um and then they once the three months is over they say okay i'm going to do another race and all the benefits that they built up leading into that race have gone. Um, so you'll often find athletes are they they are repeating the same thing year in year out, and they're never getting the advantage of building on what they'd built before. So they're building themselves up. They're then letting that those that those strengths dissipate uh, over a three month period, and then they're starting again. Um, a lot of the athletes that we've worked with for over years. Um, they stay with us year in, month in, month out, year in, year out. Yes, you need take time off. You need recovery. Um, but you, you can't take three months off and stop. Um, I think that's one of the f- biggest things. The other issues that I see is, um, again, short term. They, 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 they don't take a long-term view. They're not planning three years ahead. They're not planning four years ahead. Um, and that's where you really get the benefits. Uh, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have short-term goals. But you should be looking that that far ahead, even if you're an age grouper. If you want to, uh, that could be going to Kona and getting in the top 10 in your age group at Kona. In order to do that, you probably need to go there first and really suss it out. So you need to get there twice. In order to do that, you need to you know, have a good Ironman. You need to know who you're competing against. You need to know the times you need. So you need to you probably, so you're looking at doing that twice. You might not do it the first time. Learn from the first time. The second time you qualify third time you go to Kona, then you go again. Um, a long-term plan rather than a short-term, what am I going to do? What bucket list race am I going to do this year? Um, they, another factor is, again, it's, I see a lot of athletes working in groups and they're going out with their groups and with their friends. And as a consequence, the training is very average. And I'm not meaning that as a quality average. I'm meaning it that people everybody's doing everything at the same level and it may not be appropriate for that person um it may not be appropriate in terms of intensity may not be appropriate in terms of volume it may not even be appropriate in terms of what they're doing at that time you you can have people who are racing at different times of the year training together at the same time how can that be appropriate for two people somebody's racing in june somebody's racing in september and yet they're going out and doing the same session that cannot be specific to the athlete so lack of specificity specificity in their training um you have to be selfish you have to actually say this is my training for my goals this is what i'm doing if you want to come along with me that's fine but it may not be appropriate for you the training that i'm doing is appropriate for me um and as i think the the social aspect of going out and riding with your mates and doing sessions um, you know, on Zwift, um, 
is that session specific to what you are needing to do? Probably not. Yeah. Well, Swift is great because they have this functionality. I have never used it personally, actually. Uh, but uh, Well, actually, I've been writing with a mate on Swift and and uh, what he tends to do sometimes uh, when when I've been in slightly in a slightly fitter shape is that he's been weight doping. So and then, then you can ride <laughs> together. And, and that's fine when you're just, you're not racing or anything. So, yeah. but then the other yeah. thing is that you actually have with Swift the official group, well, official group workouts where you can just set up your group workouts and have and sort of be at uh, at a specific percentage and everybody stays together in the group. So so that's a useful tool yeah. that can actually be used in a social environment. Uh, the, the other thing I would say about that is that uh, just to plug a past episode I did a few weeks ago, TTS first day number six was on group training, how to use it and how not to use it. So listeners that want to hear more details about that can can go and, and listen to it. But, but I agree with you. I think that, and that's one of the things you mentioned earlier about discipline and uh, like this uh olympian that you're coaching for example understanding what it takes and and sometimes like if you if your goal is to go to kona or perform at kona you you have to you have to realize that well maybe you have you have the trade-off between doing optimal training for you or training with your mates and and you need to kind of maybe sometimes be aware that the discipline of doing the best training for you at the level that you should be doing it is what's going to make a difference in the long run if you, if you do that consistently and not not to say that you should never train in a group of course no. but uh, but yeah it, it's something that it can't always be like exactly what you think is like the most fun on the day because that's not the way to improve and i think that's important um and i'm really glad you said that because it also touches on the fact that it requires sacrifice um, there might be races other races that you really want to do and you really want to be in great shape for those races, but it's mid-season and you can't take your eye off the ball. It, you, I mean, that, that is not the goal race. That is not the A race. That You can go and do it. We can use it to test things out, to try things out, try out nutrition, try out uh, different positions. Um, but we can't, we can't expect to perform optimally at every race when we are focusing on a, uh, on a, on a goal race. And that requires the athlete to be very in- – intrinsically motivated you cannot you cannot rely on the external motivation of going to races and getting the kudos of oh well done you did brilliantly at that race um because you're going to maybe go to races and you're trying things out we're experimenting and you don't have a great race and so you don't get that external applause you don't get that um uh that pat on the back so you've got to be able to internally motivate yourself to go out and do it the coach can help you but at the end of the day, you've got to have the intrinsic motivation to go out and do the hard work, often on your own, often in the dark and in the cold. Um, and sometimes that means doing it without your mates. Yeah, yeah. The, the other thing you mentioned there before about taking three months off or something like that, and that being resetting you to square one, it's something that like I've been harping on about quite often is to that we often uh, look at our training from a very micro perspective when we yeah. should be zooming out and looking at it from a macro perspective. And, and we tend to look at, well, how much training did I do this week, for example, as a key metric, but then you tend to forget your bad weeks and you look at, okay, I did a few 15 hour weeks. And, but if you did a couple of them, you think that, well, my training volume is 15 hours per week or so. But actually when you, mm. when you look at it from a yearly perspective and your average is eight hours per week then that's maybe the reason that uh, you're not quite at the level yet to qualify for for kona and you need to exactly. zoom out and, and look at well how much training 
in a given year do I actually need to do to to get that that fitness to to really be able to compete for those spots. And I think that's why it's critical when you have that discussion with the athlete that we talk about goals and whether those goals are actually realistic and effective. Um, and it's great to have a goal and say, yeah, I want to go to Kona. I want to win my age group in Kona. Great. Okay. Ain't going to happen this year. It's not going to happen. You've got to be honest with the athlete and say, it's not going to happen. It's not, I'm not saying it's not possible going forward, but in the time between now and then and where you currently are, it's not going to happen. We need to take a longer term view. Um, and that's, I mean, that's one of the key components of coaching is honesty. Uh, you can, you can sometimes maybe sugarcoat it a bit nicer, but uh, at the end of the day, you've got to be honest with the athlete and the athlete has got to take, we come back to it again, that long-term view. Very few people. And, and, and I think you're so right. People, they tend to, there's two things. The older we get, the faster we used to be in our minds. Um, and I think the same thing applies for the training as you identified. We remember our good weeks. We don't remember our bad weeks. And so we have to look at the at the big picture both going back and going forward you can't just take snapshots yeah is there anything else that you uh want to mention about think advice for listeners when it comes to if, if they have goals such as qualifying for kona or performing yeah. at a world yeah. championship level um a lot of people will probably disagree with me on this one but i i think there's a lot to be said for working on your technique uh, i know there's a number of coaches who say yeah, you're wasting your time doing drills um, I don't agree with that. I think you can, um, a lot of people, especially age groupers, never had the foundation in swimming, certainly. And often they don't have, uh, they have very poor running form. And drills can, and working on technique can make a huge difference. Uh, a case in point, um, during the lockdown, we had the COVID lockdown here in South Africa last year. Uh, and so you weren't allowed to swim. You were, pools were closed. We were very fortunate we were allowed to stay open because one person at a time. Um, and because we were one of the few places that you could swim, I had one guy come to me and say, look, I just want to come once a week and swim with you once a week. That's fine. So he came along and I convinced him when he was here to actually work on technique. Um, and when the lockdown period ended, he went out and did the same swim course that he'd done just prior to the lockdown period. So it was a two and a half K route. It was a two and a half K route. And he'd been swimming once a week for 10 weeks. So he couldn't have been any fitter because he'd previously been swimming three times a week. Um, so the only thing that had changed was technique. And he improved his swim time by 20 seconds per hundred. Wow. <laughs> and, what, and what was the starting level uh, for he that? Was swimming, he was swimming 150 per hundred yeah. and he went down to 130. Wow. Well, now, that's a big difference. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's that. You know, and it's not nor it's not normal i think it's fair to say um look i quite often with athletes I've, I, I often see athletes getting anywhere between 15 20 seconds um by working on technique yeah, in the pool yeah. okay uh, yeah. not you're not not talking getting from 130 to 110 that yeah no, no. but um when the guys are coming in at the two two minute per hundred mark they're coming in at the 150 mark if they and they've often never and i know you wanted to talk about swimming later they've often never actually been shown how to swim correctly um, and by actually integrating some fairly basic stuff, they can get huge improvements. Um, same thing with same thing with equipment. Um, people have great equipment; they don't utilize it properly. Bike fit often uh, they 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 
in positions that aren't sustainable or are just inefficient. Um, so you can spend, you've spent money on the bike, make sure, spend some more money and make sure that it's set up correctly for you. Um, you can get some real gains there. Um, and I think uh, understanding um, your pacing on the run, uh, investment in a in investment in you know, equipment again, running power meters. I'm a huge fan of. I think it's a game changer for running. Um, it allows so much more control um, of the of for the athlete and for the coach. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's move on to swimming, as you mentioned, uh, because I do want to discuss that first. If we just uh, continue on on that theme of uh, technique improvement. Mm-hmm. What are some common things you you see in these athletes that maybe come in at two minutes per one hundred or one fifty per one hundred that 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 you improve that that they need to improve? Uh, of course, it will depend. But some some common examples. Yeah, I think probably the biggest one of the big, most common things I see and I hear is people come in and they say, oh, "My legs are low in the water, sinky leg syndrome." Um, and what I find interesting about that is it's a classic example of people confusing cause with symptom because their legs are low in the water. They think that the legs are the problem. And in fact, legs in the wa- being low in the water could be as a consequence of head position. It could be a consequence of breathing. It could be a consequence of the downward propulsion at the front end of the stroke. It could be a consequence of poor core. Um, and it, could be a consequence of you know bad kicking as well but the to, the that the <clears throat> or it could be all of those so that we have to identify what is the cause and what is the problem um and what is the symptom and low legs are a classic one that you see in most of these age groupers and it's not low legs per se it's poor body position and the ability to maintain body position um and very often that is as a result of um, the inability or the lack of understanding of what a catch is. They actually, they've all heard the term catch, but they actually don't know what a catch is. Um, the, it's the misunderstanding of the term high elbow. Um, they come in and they've all done zipper drills and they've done fingertip drag drills and they, yes, they keep a high elbow. Well, in fact, that's irrelevant. What's happening above the water in the recovery really isn't a relevance when it compared to what's happening with the elbow under the water. Um, so, so what, what I use video analysis a lot. One, to be able to show them. If you can show somebody what they're doing, their perception of what they're doing, what they're actually doing is often very different. In their own mind, they think they're doing this long, elongated, smooth stroke. When you show them the actual video, um, the one person described it, beautifully as looking like an epileptic tadpole um it's that so they can see what they're doing wrong you can then show them uh with the video look at what you're doing you can then using things like the smart paddles show them the metrics and for example if you're pushing your hand down that way if you're pushing force down then what direction is your body going um i use the term physics 101 if you want to go forward the water's got to be going backwards And if you can then show them visually using video and uh, using numbers, you, you are not pushing water forward. You're not pushing water backwards. You are pushing water down. You're pushing water sideways. Um, so one of the things we work on is helping them develop a catch. But again, in order to develop a catch, you've got to have your arm in the right position. So you need to have the correct entry. Um, and again, another 
misconception of swimming is, and I see a lot of it, is thumb entry, people coming in with a thumb entry and then doing an S-shape. The only thing the thumb, en- thumb entry ever does is blow you a tater cuff. Um, so we focus on leading with the fingers. We focus on um, getting the hand in at an angle suitable for that particular athlete that will allow them to generate a catch. Uh, again, often you'll see people trying to keep the, their arm far too high on the surface of the water. And with their limited range of shoulder-to-shoulder flexibility, they're never going to get a catch at that point. So instead, the arm goes straight down, generating downward propulsion, um, and they just are unable to generate a catch. Um, so things that we work on, making sure that their arm is able to come in, which means we're working on rotation. Once the arm is in, that they are able to then, they know what a catch is and they're able to generate a catch. They're able to hold that catch. Um, and that it will generate the propulsion. Uh, I'm also, I like them to focus on engaging core just through the simple technique of squeezing your glutes. It's, and in fact, what I do quite often is I have them swimming and I'll show them video footage of them swimming. And then I'll say, okay, I want you to swim again. But when I put my hand in the air, I want you to squeeze your glutes really tight and just carry on swimming. Don't change anything else. Just squeeze your glutes. And it's remarkable. You often see with it. And so they're swimming along and the legs are down. And then when they see me with a hand in the air, they squeeze their glutes for all they're worth and they carry on swimming. And you just see the body coming up and the feet coming up, everything tightening up, becoming alignment, and they're swimming faster. Simply because by squeezing the glutes, they're engaging their core. And by engaging the core, everything else, just the feet come together, the kick gets faster, the turnover happens. Um, And I think a lot of people, when they swim, they've been told, relax in the water. No, why? Why would you relax in the water? When you're on the time trial bars, when you're cycling, you're not relaxed, you're engaged. When you're running, when you're running with correct form, you're not floppy and relaxed, you're engaged. Swimming's no different. You need to be engaged, which means you need to engage your core, which means you, and the simplest way of doing that is by thinking about squeezing your glutes, pointing your toes, squeezing your glutes. That can actually make, that can save seconds. I've seen people gain seconds per hundred just by squeezing their toes and pointing their glutes. Um, And you've then got to go through the process of, they were unconsciously incompetent. They've got to focus on it, push off the wall, play with it, really squeeze, then begin to loose, uh, begin to relax, feel where the legs, be- legs begin to drop. Once they are consciously aware of it, they can keep ingraining it and keep doing it until it becomes unconsciously competent. Um, so body position is often impacted by the propulsive stuff and the core engagement. So making sure the hand is in the correct position to get a catch um, and making sure that we are engaged when we swim. Uh, and you can get gains on that. You can really get gains on that. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good a good piece of advice. And, and one, what, one, last, one last one as well is cadence. I see far too many age group swimmers swimming with a ridiculously low turnover. Um, you know, but it's good it's, for yourself to do that. <laughs> don't start me on that <laughs> oh the, the most ridiculous thing in the world um uh, you know we we run we, we t- most people tend to run at a cadence of between 160 and 180 most people tend to cycle at a cadence of similar similar cadence why should our swim be any different our yeah. arms and our legs we, we we move them in conjunction so why are we suddenly doing swimming at 35 40 strokes per minute um, yes, you need to have the cardiovascular engine to do it, but we're triathletes. If we don't have the cardiovascular effort to support a higher cadence in the swim, then who does? 
Yeah, no, totally. I think that uh, the SwimSmooth uh, team have a really good uh, chart, actually, because yeah. I, I do think cadence or stroke rate depends also on how fast you are, because if you're swimming two minutes per 100 and you're trying to swim at a cadence of 70 or 80 strokes per minute, then you're probably just slipping through the water and not, not really doing anything with it. So then it makes sense that your cadence should be lower until you get to, to a point where where you're kind of where, where you're getting getting some some benefit from that stroke rate but but that chart basically plots yeah. kind of a range where your cadence should be depending on on how fast you are and the faster you are the high, higher stroke rate should should be so so that is a really good resource that if yeah. if listeners google it, they so. can they can yeah they can find swim, it. swim smooth um the swim smooth was first adopted by british triathlon back in about 2000 and it would have been about 2004 2005 i think it was um and british triathlon uh, adopted the swim smooth model so obviously when i did my coaching qualifications with british triathlon I was exposed to that. Uh, and in fact, ITU, International Triathlon Union, actually are using the Swim Smooth model uh, as well. Uh, so I've got a lot of uh, time and respect for the Swim Smooth approach. And I, I, a lot of what they, a lot of what I do is based around them. Um, but like all things, uh, as you were saying about the chart, uh, the, the, the favorite phrase of most coaches are, it depends. Um, and that chart is, if you're swimming at that pace, that cadence. But I would also ask, if you increase the cadence, your swim is going to get faster as well yeah well I, I think i think the good thing is that it has a range so yeah. so so then so it's not well you should have this it's exact one stroke rate. It's, yeah, it's, yeah it's a bit pretty pretty broad range to be uh to be yeah. fair yeah yeah but uh yeah that's uh that's really good uh good with stroke rate and um and yeah for for the open water especially like it, it becomes all the more important we're not pool swimmers we're triathletes so so, so yeah so good stuff which, which which again is i mean i don't know why people are still coached uh with like zipper drill and fingertip drag when most of them are going to be wearing a wetsuit uh yeah. <laughs> you're never going to be able to do that in a wetsuit it's just yeah. not going to happen yeah well uh, let's discuss a little bit of how uh, about how you're using the smart paddle uh, i think mm-hmm. maybe maybe you can first explain what it is because i don't think all listeners are aware of it sure. um the smart paddle is a small uh, smaller than your palm that goes onto each hand, uh, and it has got gyroscopes and accelerometers built into it. Um, the information from that is then Bluetooth to an app, which you have on your phone poolside, uh, which allows you to then look at the information that is sent from the devices. And what the device is doing is it's measuring the amount of force that is produced. <clears throat> they don't like to use the word power, so they, they're using force, and it measures the force and it measures the direction of force that is produced with each hand on each stroke. Um, and you can actually go in and look at every stroke, stroke by stroke, or you can look at an average of strokes over you know, 100 meters, 200 meters, whatever. Uh, and it, then you get both the numbers and you also can visually see uh, graphically on a graph um, the percentage of force that is exerted both driving you forwards, pushing your body up by going downwards, and lateral. Uh, and it actually p- can plot as well the actual movement um, from above and from the side of your hand when you swim. So that's what it does. And literally, we have it, a person could be swimming within a minute of them finishing, uh, say, a 400 meter. Uh, I can have them looking at a screen uh, above the pool. And we can go through and actually the stroke, stroke by stroke and say, let's have a look. And then let's look at the video as well. Look at what you're doing here on the video. 
And let's look at what your hand position. Your hand position went from extension and it went straight down over the next you know, third of a second, three hundredths of a second. Let's go to the same corresponding point using the smart paddle, and we can see what the what the force was, what the power was at that point. And so the person not only is visually seeing what they've done, they're actually being given data as to what the effect of that is. Uh, and that that really surprises people. Um, when they can actually see a hard number that they can actually realize that, hold on, and so many people, I need to get stronger, I need to go and get stronger so I've got more strength for the swim. Well, actually, you've got loads of strength. You're just not applying it correctly. Um, and it allows people to clearly and cleanly see what they're doing. Um, and what is then nice is if you then say, okay, try doing this, and they can do something, and then you can literally pull it up and compare. Look at the difference. I mean, you were producing 90 newton meters of force, of which 45 were going down. At a similar point in the stroke, this time, after doing focusing on getting the elbow up, you're still producing 90 meters of force, but only 25 is going in a downward direction. Um, and they can see the difference they made on the video, and they can actually put a, a, an actual hard number to the improvement. Um, so it's immediate feedback. It's positive reinforcement of what they're doing. Yeah. And what, what I, I've used it twice as an athlete. I've never used it as a, as a coaching tool personally, but, yeah. but I know kind of what How it's like. How did you like. find it? Um, I found it very, very interesting. I, I do find it, find, find it useful, but I think he, what you're saying there with combining it with the video, that's what takes it to the next level, I think, yeah. like combining the two. Uh, and that's something that I haven't done personally but uh, i guess I'm, I'm experienced enough and have I done enough video analysis that i can kind of in my mind combine yeah. the two but but still yeah it, it is it is useful and i'm uh, yeah definitely interested in, in trying it uh trying it more in the future as well maybe maybe even as a coaching tool uh, but well, it, was de- uh, it was developed in finland as well wasn't yes, it? yes exactly so that's uh, I, I actually got to try it very early on when uh, it wasn't really available too many people uh, mm. when i was at a coaching course uh pretty close to where where the guys come from so one of the the participants in the coaching course had uh gotten access to it as just as being a friend of of, of those those developers of it so, that's yeah. pretty cool uh, but, the, uh, but one, one thing I, I wanted to ask is uh because i f- seem to remember that they also have a database of like really top swimmers so that you can compare both the uh like the force distribution in terms of direction, yep. but also the, the the actual Newton numbers with others, so you can kind of see where you are and if you're if you're actually needing more force or if it's just a direction that is off compared to to what top swimmers seem to be doing. The um, yeah, you're, you're you're right, and that is useful. But certainly with a lot of the uh, age group athletes um, that we work with, it's a little bit like they're they're worrying about stuff. Like how far apart should my fingers be? You know, should they be one millimeter or two millimeter? Whereas, um, what they if they just work on the bigger picture stuff first? Um, let's get let's get you down to one minute thirty per hundred, and then we can start looking at do we need more power? Mm-hmm. Uh, generally speaking, power is not the issue. Strength is not the issue. It's the application of it. Yeah. Uh, and so, if you what can be maybe a little bit um, putting up a number that they should aspire to could be counterproductive because they're then trying to smash out uh, and muscle their way through the water, whereas they'd be far better focused working on getting hold of the water and just pulling themselves over it. Um, yeah, so it's it, it's a bit like um, 
everybody's aware of what the professionals are producing watts per kilogram uh, on the bike. It's a nice figure to know, but it's got very little relevance to most age group triathletes. True, true. Um, I, I think what I'm comparing it to is things like, you know, all the cycling dynamics metrics and more obscure metrics like that. Like you have metrics now in cycling like torque effectiveness and, and in in running with power meters, you have leg spring stiffness and things like that. And my, issue with, some, yeah, my issue with some of these metrics is that uh, there isn't necessarily a gold standard. So, so you might not always like, you might not have a clear idea of, how like where you stack up and and if you don't know that then that that metric might have some limited use i mean there may be some use for for some of them but but what i like about these metrics that you get from the smart pedal is that well you can even if your goal isn't to try to swim like a professional swimmer because that's just 10 steps ahead of where you are but but still it's nice to know where you are at what point of your journey you are rather than Take, looking at torque effectiveness and seeing at a, that okay, it's this number, but what the heck does that tell me? N- nothing really. Yeah, I, I think um, that's one of the problems with testing. If it's testing is done in isolation, it doesn't matter whether it's with swim or bike or run. A single standalone test really is not particularly useful. It's only useful if we then act upon it and then you know observe the, what changes are, what adaptions there are, and then plot those changes later. Um, so yeah, I, I, I would agree with you on that score. Yeah. Uh, so so with the, the smart pedal, final question on it: uh, If you have an an athlete that is trying to develop their swim, how how often would you would you want to to test them with it and check their their development in with, with that tool? Um, I would say, with, in terms of, I like to work with. Them, I like to recheck and retest six weeks. I think that gives enough time for whatever behavior, whatever adaption we're looking for um, to take effect and to be ingrained into their into their stroke. Um, so, yeah, we identify, we'll do an analysis. Um, we will identify what we wanted to work on. Uh, you, we can't work on everything at the same time, so we'll identify we need to do this first. We Im- implement the changes. We ensure that the athlete is fully understanding of what they're actually doing. So to do that, you need to have very clear communication so they understand the key coaching points of what they're trying to do and then um, go away, implement it, repeat it consistently, six weeks later come back and then we can monitor, has there been the change that we were looking for? Do we need to reinforce it a bit more? Or in fact, is that now well enough ingrained that we can now move on to the next the next tier? Have we got the entry fixed? Yes, we have. So let's now really focus on getting a strong catch. Or we are, that we have a strong catch. Let's now focus on timing or focus on holding the catch all the way through the pool. Yeah. And uh, I realize I have one more question about, about the smart paddle. What, what I haven't done when I've been testing it, I've always done that with just looking at very short intervals, like up to maybe up to maybe 200 meters, if that. And and what, what I think might be interested is to see swim a moderately hard thousand or 1500 and see how your stroke might degrade is that something that you have done or used yeah i i tend to um i tend to have them swimming uh 300 400 meters um as a at a steady pace um and you can actually see if uh, one of the things you can observe is on stroke um, as you know um, on stroke by stroke you can actually then see is there, what is the difference between the first stroke and the last stroke, yeah. if any? And if there's not, then that really tells us that the behavior we'd be wanting to work on is ingrained, even under fatigue, which is what we're wanting. 
it's the ability to perform a task under fatigue that is the um, the real goal of learning a skill. And do you find it is very common that uh, that the stroke does degrade even within that 300 or 400 meters from the beginning to the end? When certainly when uh, say they come in for the t- we, we first taught them when you first taught them the behavior and they're implementing it up front, yes, you'll see it drops off massively. Um, if they're practicing it over a six week period, you'll generally speaking see that it actually is fairly consistent. Okay. Um, and if it isn't consistent, then what they need to do, if there is still the drop-off, then it just tells me we need to go back and practice it more, integrate it more. There's no point moving on to the next step if that isn't – swimming is incredibly hierarchical. Uh, and it's one of the things I often saw with um, uh, with coaches. Uh, they will give drills. Um, and I, I, was, I was asked to go and observe at one club. And uh, so the coaches were there at the poolside. And they were busy working on mid-skull. And everybody was plowing up and down, up and down, up and down. And um, most of the people were doing the drill quite badly. Uh, when I looked at the swimming, I could see that they actually really had no clue how to even initiate the catch. So I said, okay, why are we working on mid-skull? I asked the coach, why are we working on mid-skull? Okay, why aren't we focusing on front skull to help or entry drills? Oh, no, we did that last week. Mm. Now, that's just... We did those drills last week. No, that's not the purpose of a drill. A drill is not a warm-up. A drill is not something you can do to fill up mileage on the on the deck. Uh, a drill is to teach a behavior. And if it's not done properly, I tell people if a drill is done 90% right, it's 100% wrong. The yeah. drill has to be done with thought and with precision. And if you do that, and you do that long enough and often enough, you will then get it correct, and it will then be holding, and you will have the impact of that for the 300, 400 meters. And only once you've done that can you move on to the next one. People are scared. Coaches are scared of boring their athlete, and they try to keep lots of innovation and change and difference uh, because they say, oh, my athlete's going to get bored. Well, I'm sorry. Sometimes you've got to be bored. If you want to do it properly, it takes repetition. And Boredom is one of the prices you're going to have to pay. Yeah, I've, the way I view drills, I, I totally agree with that. And uh, and I sometimes, in my mind, compare it to uh, when I was uh, when I was younger. I used to do quite a bit of music, play different instruments, and practicing scales in in music is Love something it. that is you you have to you you can't, can't play it like if you get it if you get something slightly wrong then the scale is wrong like you you have to get it perfectly right and 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 you keep practicing it until you get it perfectly right you you don't move on to the next more difficult one until you have have the current one one really really perfected i think that's a brilliant i think that's a brilliant example um, i'm going to nick that if you don't mind yeah no problem um, <laughs> uh, yeah that's that's exactly it so um, yeah the I, I can I, I can recall speaking to on a, one coaching course. Um, one of the coaches actually came up to me afterwards, and he said, "You know, as an athlete himself, he always used to pitch up late for sessions because he couldn't be bothered doing the drills, and that was because it was never explained to him what the purpose of the drill was." Yeah, I, I mean, you, you, if if you explain to somebody why they're doing the drill as opposed to just do these drills, if they understand what the purpose of it is, um, if they understand how it's going to impact upon their swim, their run, then they're more likely to do it. And if they, and, and if they understand what they're trying to achieve with it, they're more likely to do it correctly. And if they do it correctly, they will get improvement. And if they get improvement, 
they will be motivated to do more again and again and again. It's a self, it's a self-motivating thing. But if you don't understand why you're doing the drill, or if you're just rushing it through because you want to get onto the main set, um, you, you're never going to get the improvement. Never. Yeah. And, and that's a good segue because I think that applies to, to training as a whole, like uh, to coaching. If your athlete knows why they're doing a workout then and, and what the workout, what the purpose of the workout is, then they're more likely to execute it properly and to, to adjust uh, based on what the purpose of the workout is as well. So, so with that segue, let's go back into discussing coaching a little bit. As, as you mentioned, sure. you have done uh, a fair amount of coaching education and the coach facilitation. So, so for listeners in the audience that might be interested in getting into coaching or, or just to people that are already coaches, uh, what general advice would you, would you give to coaches based on what you've uh, seen in your uh, coach education uh, career yeah um first of all understand why you want to be coaching okay um you know what is it you want to get out of it uh if it's just something to pass the time then you're probably not wanting to be a coach um the very best coaches across all sports historically have always come from a teaching background you know john wooden uh, bob dwyer ian mcgeekin um that these are guys who are teachers because coaching actually is pedagogy. In fact, if you look at a lot of the master's coaching courses that are now available, um, uh, pedagogy is one of the subjects you have to learn. Um, so understand that coaching is not just about the technical stuff. Um, it's not just about the science. And in fact, I would argue that coaching is more about the um, – how you get people to do things rather than what you get people to do. Um, this is not just about the reps. It's, it's about communication. Um, we talked earlier on about feedback, how important feedback is. Um, it's having the trust. Um, you need to be organized. You can have the most knowledge in the world. If you're not organized, if you can't, if you can't rock up on time for a session, then you shouldn't be coaching. Um, I do believe that somebody with limited knowledge, but who's organized, clear and concise and planned, they're going to give a better session and be a better coach than the most scientifically gifted person who doesn't know how to communicate that information to the athlete. So understand why you wanted to coach. Understand that coaching is a, what it's about. It's an interaction with somebody first and foremost. Um, and if you don't have those communication skills, go away and work on those. Um, as I said, I was at a, I was at a seminar last year. Um, and um, the, one of the things that was said was that with the boom on online, all the information is out there. Anybody can go online and with a little bit of work, they can get a training program. They can work out what they should be doing. Okay. Um, that's not what coaching is. Coaching is, you know, helping the athlete identify their goals, identifying their weaknesses. It, you do need to have some technical knowledge, obviously, um, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And I, I see so often people on courses, they come on courses and they want to learn, how do I do this? How do I periodize? Tell me more about um, you know, you know, what level of um, intervals we should be doing. Tell me more about smart paddles. Tell me more about stride. When in fact, most of them would be far better off just learning to how to actually demonstrate correctly. Um, and how to communicate correctly. Um, so, yeah, that's to, if you want to get into coaching, understand that coaching is teaching. 
Um, and it's and not what just is, what, about... What would you say is the are some ways for people to learn how to teach, uh, demonstrate, communicate, all, all these uh, things, that, skills that you mentioned? Uh, are, do you have any tips for, for how to work on them? Yeah, the um, go and watch other coaches. Um, go and watch other coaches. Uh, watch how they engage with the athlete. And you can identify quite quickly the good coaches and the bad coaches. Um, I, I, I went to... Um, I went to go and observe a complete different sports. It was a, a mixed martial arts uh, event and there was coaching going on there. Um, and it was so obvious that there was two different coaches and they were coaching a complete different styles. One was effective, one was completely ineffective. And you could see by the engagement of their athletes, who was the more effective coach. Um, video, if the coaches don't mind, video what they're doing. Then go out and practice it yourself. Take a session, ask somebody to video you while you're running a session and then review back to back through it um were you when you were giving instructions so often you'll see people out on the field um, and they're giving instructions while walking away from the athlete so and you don't even realize you're doing it often they'll be demonstrating and they're demonstrating from a position that half the people can't see um, so being able to if you do a session have it recorded if you can and then review it go back over it look for those things okay were people engaged could people clearly see Okay, and if the person who's bidding you couldn't, see, if they couldn't see the demonstration correctly, then the athletes probably couldn't either. Um, and you know, don't be scared to ask. I, I work with; I've got about seven coaches that I work with, um, and we're all sharing ideas. We're all we're all passing ideas back and forward, uh, and and a lot of it is not about the how do we increase their VO two. A lot of it is about okay person's going through a rough patch what can we do to motivate them um having a having a network of coaches uh, a community of practice is a brilliant idea if you can set up and you don't have to be experts but if you can set up a, a coaching community of practice where you can round table things uh from and it can be technical it can be subject matter it can just be dealing with people that helps tremendously yeah no i couldn't agree more and uh, that's something that that we're also doing within scientific triathlon every every couple of weeks we have a round table and, and a lot of the times it's about soft skills like communication i don't even want to call it soft skills uh, i don't know if that's the correct term but but yeah. non non-technical things because that's uh, yeah as you say the technical things you can anybody can find them online a lot of them <laughs> people can find on this podcast really so yeah. so it's not uh they they don't need us as coaches to to learn those things necessarily if they are just motivated enough to, to, to educate themselves in the technical skills. But, but it's about these other things that, that really make the big difference with, with having a coach versus not having a coach. And I think one of the, one of the, the key things to be careful of is we are currently living in this over-communicated society. Um, there is so much data out there. Uh, and in fact, on, on my Twitter timeline, every, a day doesn't go past where there isn't something, uh, another paper being published. Uh, on this and you think oh, i've got to read this i've got to read that and so much of the information would seem to be contradictory that you can get paralysis by analysis um, work out what you're doing make sure keep it simple keep it if you're starting off keep what you're doing simple don't try and overcomplicate it and just stick with it um, and as long as you're applying basic key points and you're keeping it consistent you're not going to go too far wrong People try and get way too fancy, way too quick. Um, and for example, again, those people who were doing more and more advanced drills in the pool, why? Because, well, 
we need to do those duels. Keep it simple. Decide what you wanted to focus on, um, and cut out cut out as much of the noise as you can because there is so much noise out there. A lot of it is very valid. A lot of it is very good, but you cannot you cannot keep up to date with everything that's going on unless you're a full time researcher. Um, I'm not saying don't be aware of changes and don't be aware of technology, but you can't you you cannot spend all day you know trying to keep up to date with what's being said there's just too much noise yeah and and that's where again as you mentioned the network really comes in because if you have that good network then somebody will tell you hey look this interesting paper came out and you can just ask them so what's your take on that and if you trust them then of course uh, i mean in some cases you want to form your own opinion by by reading the piece but but sometimes as you said, it's not possible to read everything as you said so so having yeah. a network where you can you can rely on each other's knowledge and and reading different things can really help you get more knowledge than you would otherwise be able to do just on your own and and, and when we're talking about networks people forget that the best way to learn something is to teach it yeah and so if you're a network and then you're saying okay i want to explain to the guys in in the group this con- this concept if you're having to teach it to them then you're going to actually know it. By the time you're actually presenting it to them, you're going to know the subject matter. Um, so huge, you, know, uh, you, you can't go wrong with that. Yeah. Um, from an athlete's perspective, what are the benefits of, of getting a good coach? Um, yeah, uh, basically, they might have, if it's, let's go back to the age grouper who's a triathlete who's wanting to, who's plateaued. Uh, the coach will most likely have a different approach, so he's going to force you. It's going to force you to do things slightly differently, which is likely to have an adaptation, which will be an improvement. Um, I think what's also imposed, uh, important is a coach should be giving you that feedback. So you're getting that feedback, both positive and negative. Um, there's a sense of accountability. If you've taken on a coach, you're respons- that that coach is going to hold you responsible and accountable for your actions. Um, and I think. Probably the last one as well is that you're making a commitment. You're making an investment. Um, if you're spending $120 a month on a coach, for a lot of people, that's a sizable amount of money. Um, and if you are doing that, then you're actually going to, when the going gets tough and when uh, you're down and the, tra- the training is, is hard, there's, there's been an investment and that's a commitment that you're more likely to stick with. It's easy to get out the door when you're paying for something. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, follow up on that. W- what do you think the state of coaching is today, and, and where do you think it's it's going? And and in triathlon specifically, um, it seems everybody who's done an Ironman is a coach. Um, certainly, uh, there's a plethora of people offering coaching services. Um, I think it's. Uh, I think there's there needs to be professionalization of the sport um coaches have got to become a profession um it can't just be a side hustle where you're doing it on the side just to make a few extra bucks um and for that to happen then qualifications have got to be recognized there's got to be a standardization of those qualifications uh there's got to be an accreditation process um and you know if you're wanting to be a coach you need to have met the following criteria um and that's got to be that's got to be brought into into law that's got to be legislated um i think that's the way it's got to go and we're nowhere close to that and it doesn't always and that's not going to necessarily 
alienate a lot of coaches who are out there coaching already. I think there has to be a process of recognition of prior learning. So you don't have to have a degree. But if you can show evidence that you've done the following over the last five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, and you have got um, you have got you know concrete proof of concept, and you have this is what I've done, this is how I've done it, then I think that should be there's got to be a process by which that is then considered as um, you know, recognition as yes adequate learning, adequate expertise. So I'm not saying everybody has to go to university and study. Um, but I do think there has to be an accreditation system. Um, and at the moment, there's just, there's just too many people offering online courses whereby you can go online, you become a, um, you become a level one coach or this coach or that coach. And what you've actually done is you've learned how to use a training program. You're not coaching. You cannot be a coach if it's been done entirely online because of what we discussed the soft skills. Coaching is as much about the soft skills, and you cannot get that from an online course. Um, I had one of my uh, one of my coaches uh, asked me to look into a, a course that they were interested in, so I went on and had a look at it. I went through the material, and the trouble with it was it ended up having leaving you asking more questions than it answered in the first place. And this was uh, and this actually was a course that has been um, uh, accredited by. Uh, a, a body, a fairly uh, significant body, and I'm thinking, you know, and because they, because it's all online, there's just no way that you can actually get. I, I looked at it, and I thought, you know, that's. I don't see how you can actually utilize this. Um, so I think there has to be standardization of courses. Um, who does that? I wouldn't even begin to know to ask. Um, you've got the international um, coaching education body. Uh, which is trying to standardize, but you also have ITU doing their courses. You've got uh, World Triathlon um, doing theirs. You then have public, you then have private companies offering coaching courses, um, and they're all pulling in different directions. Um, yeah. So I, I, I don't I, I hate to say it, but uh, I think it's a very confused picture at the moment, and I think it's not good for the athletes because the athletes they're looking for a coach and they have very it's very difficult for them to identify who actually is a good and acceptable and accredited coach. Um, some people, it's obvious, um, but it, it's you can just look at that. You can look at who they've worked with, and you can, more importantly, if you can identify who they've improved rather than who they've worked with, then great. Um, but I also think with the professionalization of coaching, there has to be. It will allow us to look at other issues in the sport, uh, for example, ethics. Um, there are people who are coaching in triathlon along with other sports that in my view should just not be coaching um, from an ethical point of view. Um, we've seen it with gymnastics uh, recently, uh, the abuse that takes place. Um, and um, you know, I'm familiar with cases involving triathlon where people should just not be allowed to be coaching. But at the moment we don't, we don't have that, uh, we don't have that uh, ability to remove uh, said coaches from what they're doing yeah and on a slightly different note what is something within coaching that you're currently interested in maybe learning or educating yourself in working on uh, it can can be anything um at the moment i'm looking at functional movement analysis from a biokinetics point of view uh i want to see how that ties in uh with what i'm doing on the run 
Um, and um, I've, you know, recently started looking at using um, motion devices on the run, uh, not just on the foot, but on the, sp- on the spine, on the legs, on the feet, uh, and measuring uh, the angles and, again, coming on from what TrainSense did with the swim. Uh, but to do that, you know, uh, I need a better understanding of functional movement analysis and biokinetics. So I'm, I'm looking at that at the moment and uh, scares me how little I actually know. It's terrifying. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the thing. Like in there are all these a thousand directions that you can go in, uh, in when it comes to just furthering your, your knowledge of, of triathlon because it's three disciplines and yeah. plus all the things that like the nutrition and hydration and then all the non-technical stuff that that goes into it there's there's just so much it, it never ends but that's that's yeah, a good and, 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 and inspiring yeah. thing as well uh, and I'll, I'll, you mentioned nutrition and wow that's a whole quagmire yeah <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that whole, yeah when people ask me about nutrition get very nervous um but yeah it's it's, it's the joy of triathlon though there's so much to always learn you, you you never you're you're never in the position where you think i know enough you're always left thinking okay what more do i need to know um and it, it constantly it pushes you on. It, it, it uh, I, I know less now than I did ten years ago, and that's only because I now know that there's so much more than I knew there was ten years ago. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah, it it can be overwhelming, but it can also be incredibly rewarding when you see somebody, when you see somebody clicking in the pool, or suddenly the the, the run just comes right, the absolute glee on their face that light bulb moment when they get it, that's what we coach for. That's really what we coach for. Absolutely. doesn't need to be the results. doesn't need to be the results. doesn't need to be the positions. It's just the, it's the ability to see improvement. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, a very privileged thing to be able to do. Yeah. Is there something that, uh, that I didn't ask that you feel that I should have asked or that, that you might want to, to chat about any, any topic? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the fascinating things at the moment, um, and I'd be interested in your views on it, is the, how triathlon is diverging with the different disciplines of triathlon. Uh, by that, I mean, for example, we have, you know, obviously Ironman, non-drafting. We have Olympic distance. We have sprint distance. We have ultra. We have cross-try. We've even got the team, the team relay, which is bringing a whole different level of tactics and um, specialities into the sport. Um I'm fascinated at where triathlon's going. Um, it's no longer a single sport where, um, you know, it's swim, bike, run. It's, uh, I think it's really interesting about are we going to see people specializing in team relay? Are we going to get tactics coming into a team relay whereby you choose people to do certain things? Um, you might remember back in the London Olympics, uh, there was the British team chose um one of the team one of the team uh, was actually there for his biking and everybody thought yep. okay they're going to use him and in fact there was a whole that was a whole con <laughs> they didn't go down that way um but yeah it's i i think it's fascinating to see how the sport splits and i don't i don't mean that in a bad way but there's definitely a divergence in the sport and i'm interested to see how, how it develops yeah me too uh i think it's certainly a positive thing that we have uh players coming in like super league i think is a huge positive for the sport and the pto as well and uh, and yeah it will give more options to to the athletes to to develop and and develop according to their strengths where they think they can have the most success and uh, not necessarily follow a predefined path i think that the uh, the mixed relay in the olympics is is fantastic because that can be a really exciting 
ex- yeah. exciting event for people that are not triathletes to watch and, and eventually uh, eventually grow the grow the sport so so I've, generally speaking i think i think that um yeah i'm quite positive about the the future of the sport and how it develops yeah let's see I, i'm sure that down the line uh, more specialization will come into it but but for now i, I feel that all of the events we have, even from Super League mixed relay to uh, at least 7.3 racing, but even Ironman racing, you can still be maybe not the best in the world, but you can be up there if if you're just good enough, like some athletes have shown, like the uh, the Norwegian athletes. Uh, Vincent Lee yeah. has raced a little bit on the 7.3 uh, racing scene and so on. Although, but yeah, how long that's going to last? Uh, I, I think that at some point it won't be possible to be to win the super league race series and win like a very very challenging or competitive 713 race uh, let alone ironman uh, in in a few years time maybe yeah the it's um an example of that is uh, in rugby um you had 15 15 uh, the 15 man game and you've got sevens and for centuries people have gone between the sports but it's now actually got to the stage where if you're a sevens player you don't really play the 15s game and your 15s game you can't really play the sevens and i think that's what may end up with some of these uh some i think the the, the difference between olympic distance and 70.3 i think that's manageable yeah um but i think people who start specializing on the on the sprint stuff and on the team relay uh you're not going to see them lining up on an ironman no yeah i agree and now let's move on to the rapid fire question. So take just hmm. uh, one uh, one sentence to answer these. And the first one is: What's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports? Book would be Jack Daniels. Yeah, um, read it years ago. Still have my tattered copy. It's it, it, it was just well thought out, well presented, and you, you can't go far wrong. You know, with Jack Daniels. Daniel's also, running cool, formula. Daniel's yeah. running formula, not the whiskey. Yeah, <laughs> but, but both are good. And also, yeah. you can. I mean, how? What a cool name for, for a coach. Who wouldn't want a coach called Jack Daniels? I mean, yeah. come on. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? For me personally, right now is my Stride. Um, it's it's a game changer. Um, it got me running for the first time in ten years, simply because it forced me to. Um, for, Previously, trying to get back into running, back into running, you're always comparing yourself with what you used to be able to do, and you get frustrated. To picking up a stride and utilizing it, I've now got a different metric which I can't hold any comparisons with, and it allowed me to park the ego, park the um, park the the I used to be able to do this. It's a new start, um, and also just the amount of data you can get from it is great. Yeah, and finally, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? My insecurity. How so? Can you elaborate? Um, I'm, I'm always concerned that I don't know enough. I'm always concerned of, have I done this right? Could I do it better? Uh, so I'm consistently having to go back and review what I'm doing, checking what I'm doing, and consistently looking for, always looking for, okay, is there another way of doing it? Um, it's, I suppose it's the, uh, the imposter syndrome. You're scared of being... I keep waiting for somebody to tap me on the shoulder. I started off by saying I'm the accidental coach. I keep waiting for somebody to tap me on the shoulder and say, what are you doing? You know, you didn't do sports science. You were never a sports person. How can you be a coach? So you're constantly having to 
even if it's to yourself, justify that, yes, you are doing it, you are doing it correctly, you are doing it to the best of your ability. Um, and it's, it's that fear that I think drives us to be better coaches, yeah. drives me to be a better coach, yeah. or try to be a better coach. That's great. Uh, fi- finally, where can people find you online and in uh, Cape Town and on social media? Uh, um, I, I don't use social media much. My wife does. <laughs> but we are on Instagram uh, under Dynamic Coaching. Um, we, uh, I am, it's Dynamic, um, I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, dynamic with an I. Dynamic with an I, named after my wife, Dynamic, uh, Diana. Uh, her name was Diana, so we spelt it with a D-I as opposed to a D-Y. So it's dynamic with an I. Uh, and our website is dynamic-coaching.com. Um, and uh, you can go on there. You can drop us an email um, uh, from there. If anybody's got any questions, more than happy to answer any questions anybody's got. Uh, or if you just want to rag me off about how silly I sound, then that's also fine. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation, Neil. It was uh, a great pleasure. So thank you so much for taking the time and uh, I'll hope to talk to you again soon. No, I, I enjoyed it and uh, thank you for the opportunity and it was uh, a, a privilege to be on the uh, on the show. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Neil. Uh, please uh, let me know, by the way, for this uh, episode and other episodes, whether they be interviews or solo episodes, what you think. I'm always happy to receive feedback on my email, michael at scientifictriathlon.com. And that is Michael with a K. Also, suggestions for topics and guests that you would like to see is uh, more than welcome. So don't hesitate to be in touch. As usual, you can find the show notes for the episode on scientifictriathlon.com, where we'll link to uh, the Dynamic Coaching website and Twitter and Instagram profiles. And also, I've linked to the TrainSense Smart Pedal website if you want to find out more about that tool, since we discussed, discussed that in quite some depth. Big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses, and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Sen8. Use the Sen8 Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, and stamina, even when you don't have time to go to the pool or when pools are closed, and get 20% off your order on the Swim Trainer with the promo code that you can get on sen8swimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft love.